0: Welcome, listeners, to the ASI Podcast. My name is Russ Shaw. You're listening to season six of the podcast, episode number eight. First guest of season six, Joshua Shea, recoveringpornaddict.com. You're listening to ASI247.org.
1: felt like I was treated differently because I was you know had a celebrity status right but what what I recognized is that uh, that actually allowed me to have a little bit of a platform and as I went through recovery over the next two years before I did a six-month jail term and I figured out that you know writing a book while I was in jail uh, I realized that I could actually still use what little celebrity I had you know ultimately see if I could do some good and and break some stereotypes and help some people. She lights a candle, but she doesn't know why she wants to save me.
0: Joshua Shea, my guest today on the ASI podcast, my first guest of season six of the uh, the podcast. It's good to have you on, Josh. How are you doing over there on the uh, East Coast?
1: Thank you very much for having me. I didn't realize that I would be uh, setting the tone for your season.
0: Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I really wanted to talk about this season is I have a... I'm having a very heavy mental health approach to this season, and uh you' you know I read your biography and your story about your book. you sent me a copy on p d f and it's like, yeah, this guy's been through the shit, you know, and I'm just honored to to have you on man
1: well, I appreciate you inviting me on any chance I can get to uh share any info about pornography addiction with people uh, I jump at it
0: right um. So, tell me a little bit about yourself, Josh. You, uh, you're you one of these guys who is admired. I've talked to a lot of people over the years, and this seems to be a real successful person's uh, disease, to use that word. There was a woman who wrote a book in New York City, and she called her um, risky, promiscuous sexual behavior uh, the working woman's heroine. And there's something to that. Um, successful people living kind of in the dark, two lives. It's a lot of your story. Uh, so introduce yourself to the listeners a little bit. Who? Where do you come from, your background?
1: Yeah, um, I was uh, born and raised in uh, central Maine, still live here. Tried to get out a few times, it never quite took. Um, and I, at about 17, 18 years old, got involved with my local newspaper, and then never looked back. I loved journalism. I loved publishing. I worked my way up uh, over the course of 15 years to the point that I launched my own magazine in Central Maine. It was a lifestyle magazine covering dining and arts and that kind of stuff. Uh, it, It quickly became one of the most popular magazines in the state. That magazine, in turn, allowed me to launch what became one of the largest film festivals in new england um it was called one of the 25 coolest by movie maker magazine uh as all this was going on i also ran for my local city council and absolutely killed the competition so i had a lot going on and what i didn't realize was that ultimately i was just trying to run from who i really was because when it was just me alone late at night wife and kids had gone to bed uh you know and i'd I'd crack a beer i'd start looking at porn the thing was i didn't like who i was so i i could play this other guy during the day i was able to craft these caricatures of myself for the public and all of these caricatures were very successful happy overachieving people But when I got home by myself, when it was just me, I was a very unhappy person for a very, very long time. Going back to my early childhood, I had trauma. I had a lot of issues. And pornography, much like alcohol, was a giant soothing coping mechanism. You're able to hide it because most people don't recognize pornography as a problem. Most people use pornography and don't talk about it. You know, whether it's recreational or addictive, nobody likes to talk about their pornography use. So it's an easy thing to hide. You know, it's, it's, it's not like, you know, drinking or gambling or food addiction, which are, kind of have to be done out in the public. This yeah. is something you can do behind closed doors. That's
0: kind of interesting, too. I didn't think about it that way. Like guys don't talk about their porn use like they do a netflix show you know (laughs) like people talk about some cool netflix show they saw hey let me tell you about the show i saw on netflix but no one's going you know oh yeah i watched this you know stepmom threesome or some shit like that like people don't do that it's it's uh you're right it's something that's sort of even even today where it's widely accepted people are still kind of weird about it right
1: Absolutely. And there was just a uh, study that came out about a month ago. Some Canadian researchers and some uh, folks out in Southern California. uh, It wasn't about porn addiction specifically. The study was about how pornography affects a marriage, uh, whether one uses it or both uses it. And the most startling thing that I found, they they interviewed over a thousand people, about half men, half women. Most of them were under 40 years old. 98% 98% of the men had watched pornography in the last six months. Uh, something like 80-something percent had done it in the last month. For women, it was something like 75% in the last six months and 60% in the last month. So, you know, not not that any of those people are addicted, but everybody is basically watching pornography. That means you put 200... Married people in a room, and something like 270 of them have watched porn in the last six months. So we need to stop pretending that nobody watches porn because everybody does.
0: Yeah, that's very true. It's not. Uh, it's not this. It's not this dirty little thing anymore. And that's a, another thing is the the demand. Well, well, for well, actually, it let me let me correct you there.
1: I think in most people's minds, it is still a dirty little thing. It's just that we have such easy access to it people who would never go into an adult bookstore in the past or an adult movie theater or would never dare uh, rent a dvd or a vhs tape back in the late 80s early 90s well you don't have to do anything like that now because everything is at the click of a button but it i think it really is still a dirty little secret with most people
0: yeah but i think that it also isn't like, I don't think that porn is this kind of creature that's lurking into people's houses and doing bad stuff to us necessarily. Right. So what I mean by that is the porn industry is is created by demand. We demand Absolutely. its existence and it, it's there to serve a need at some level. And I think that's where that's where people are are interacting with it. so to speak but yeah you're right in the sense that again people don't talk about it like they talk about shows on netflix
1: right right right
0: so this thing for you got to a point of uh uh where you had a a bomb go off in your life and i'm so i'm so encouraged by guys like you because a lot of guys like yourself would hide man and instead you wrote a freaking book about it right yeah that's what i love about you dude
1: yeah, and, I, 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 and I'll tell you you know, why in a minute. It was kind of by default, but uh, yeah, um, I also have bipolar disorder. And in 2013, early 2013, uh, there was some cracks showing at the magazine. I am a great editor. I'm a great writer. I'm not a great business person. Uh, the magazine was so successful in its first three, four years, I was able to hide that because we just had a ton of money coming in. When that plateaued, but our expenses kept going up, that's when it became real obvious I didn't know what I was doing running a company. Uh, and that really stressed me out because I had employees, I had you know loans that were out there. I had I was trying to run this large business and I had no idea what I was doing and was just starting to fail at it and starting to see what was going to happen. Um, in turn, that stress caused me to start to uh, alienate my family a little bit. Um, And what I decided was I would pull myself off of my bipolar medication because I remembered what it was like 15 years earlier when I was manic. I could be awake 20, 21 hours a day. I had an unending supply of energy and something in my head told me that if I could tap into what I had when I was 22, 23 years old, well, being there now at 36, 37, If I had that kind of energy and that kind of drive, I might be able to save this magazine. Unfortunately, what happened was that with the removal of the bipolar medication, my drinking and my pornography use absolutely skyrocketed um, over the course of four, five, six months, didn't help with the magazine whatsoever and what i actually started doing uh late at night after my wife and kids had gone to bed you know midnight 1am i'm sitting there with a big glass of red bull and tequila i actually made the transition over from looking at video clips to talking one-on-one with people in chat rooms Right. And eventually, eventually, I and mean, you know, not not these paid camera chat rooms, more your peer to peer kind of things and uh, where you never know who's going to come up next. And I, you know, I went down that path. I was able to convince women to you know, take off their clothes and then do things to themselves. And uh, unfortunately, in early 2014, I got a knock at my door one morning and it was the Maine State Police. And they had a search warrant for my house and my computers. And, uh, you know, long story short, they let me know that uh, they knew that I was I had uh, talked to a teenager online who, you know, I, I don't remember the specific girl, but it doesn't surprise me. And with, with how messed up I was, um, I never, you know, tried tried to say I wasn't guilty, Go but ahead. it was one of those things where, yeah, there's your bomb. You know, you have a life one minute. And then that evening, you're running from TV cameras right. um, that keep showing up at your house. And, you know, you, you you mentioned me writing the book. I wrote the book because everything's out there about me. I, right I was already. so well known. I was so well known in central Maine that I was the top story on the news for the next few days. You know, the, the morning paper, I was front page, top of it, you know, six columns across. Uh-huh. And, you know, anybody can go Google my name and find anything out about it. And at at first, that really upset me before I got into recovery that I was I felt like I was treated differently because I was, you know, had a celebrity status, you know, in central Maine. Right. But what, what I recognized is that uh, that actually allowed me to have a little bit of a platform. And as I went through recovery over the next two years before I did a six month jail term, uh, I realized that I could actually still use what little celebrity I had, maybe for some good. And I figured out that, you know, writing a book while I was in jail, I didn't want to waste my time those six months. I'd write a book and, uh, you know, ultimately see if I could do some good and and break some stereotypes and help some people. um, And and hopefully it's working.
0: Yeah, because and I think that's great that, you know, people like you write books and we get to see behind the scenes in someone else's life. Uh, especially someone like yourself who's got had that local celebrity and you know was exposed very. Uh, publicly. Uh, there's a lot of people just end up getting fired because they find something comes up on, on their, you know, their phone right. or, or their internet history. And, you know, we don't hear about those people as much, but they're going through the same kind of suffering. You lose your job, you lose, you know, you break trust in your relationships. Right. And, and that's why a lot of people listen to this show. Um what was the title of your book, by the way, Josh?
1: The title is The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About. Uh the subtitle is How I Let My Pornography Addiction Hurt People and Destroy Relationships.
0: Yeah. And the destruction of relationships is a is a big one, you know? And one of the things that I've been doing, so I've been doing this show for twelve years. And I've interviewed a lot of folks on this topic and you're right. The title of the book is very appropriate because you're right. No one really wants to talk about it because it it's, it's in, it's in the shadow world, right? We tend to not want to expose it in the same once in the same way. Somebody would expose alcohol abuse, but I will say that they function differently. Um, so and one of the questions I was really curious going through your material was uh, if you were to say you had a relationship with porn and alcohol, say, you know, Jose Cuervo, for example, right? Yeah. And using these things in relational terms, um, which one came first? Would you say the alcohol or the <laughs> pornography?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I know the pornography came first. Uh, I, I, I know that for a fact. And I'll tell you. Uh, When people want to argue with me about uh, if porn addiction is a real addiction or how it's different than other addictions, I'll I'll tell you this. I was 11 or 12 years old the first time I saw hard pornography in in, uh, a couple of Penthouse or Hustler magazines. Something happened in my mind first time I saw it. Uh, It felt like I had just found a giant secret to life. I found something that was going to make me feel better, that was special, that this was just something different. Now, that was 11 or 12 years old. I didn't get drunk for my first time till about three or four years later. Mm-hmm. And, and while alcohol will have, obviously, uh, a, a physical reaction that's you know different, what happened in my mind, you know, with my dopamine receptors... I recognized that I had just discovered something amazing. Right. Uh, this was going to make me feel better. If I was ever stressed out, if if I needed to escape this world, oh my God, alcohol works. And that's what I had from, from being a teenager was that alcohol and porn, I use them interchangeably, largely for the same thing.
0: Right. So did I. <laughs> I can relate, man. Absolutely. And, one of the things I'm doing with this season 6 of the show is teasing out some of this stuff that's coming from psychological circles about pornography addiction and some there's people that have claimed it's not an addiction and it's not recognized in the DSM as an addiction but right. you're will, you're right, you're right in eventually. the sense that it it feels like addiction because you're you're out of control in your behavior. Um right. I, I use the the term uh, compulsive sexual behavior, you know, tomato tomato Right. But I I get what you're saying in the sense that that alcohol and sex are interchangeable. But getting into sexual history, you know, it it goes another layer deeper. Does that make sense?
1: Uh, No, I I, I absolutely agree with that. Um, I think that, you know, I, I think like any addiction, you know, there are three things at play. There's your DNA at play. There's your upbringing at play. And then there's just your poor decision making at play,
0: yeah. yeah, or impulse control,
1: right? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, uh, humorously enough, you mentioned that the DSM doesn't, you know, list uh, sex addiction yet. To get into my sex addiction rehab back in 2015, I had to be diagnosed with an impulse control condition, so insurance would cover it,
0: right? Yeah,
1: because that 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 is a that is a real problem. But sex addiction isn't, even though everything in front of your face says otherwise.
0: Right, and the impulse control is also something recognized by genetic science as well. Like they've mapped the human brain. That was something I heard. Uh, a woman asked this professor at Yale about uh, the genome mapping and and they and she just asked like she'd been through aa or something right and she's like did you find the alcohol gene you know and and he's like no you know we didn't find any genetic markers for alcohol but we did absolutely find genetic markers for impulse control so which is different right alcohol some folks can use it some po- folks can use it you know, So I was told that I had a disease. I was forced into alcohol uh, recovery by the state of Washington when I was 16. I'd actually broke into my stepfather's house, stole a half gallon of rum and proceeded to drink the whole thing. So I died. I actually died. I had an alcohol overdose and uh, was arrested later for breaking into my stepfather's house. Um, but they told me I had a disease that alcohols the devil that I could never drink again and if I did, I would go down this you know which I just found not true as I got older, I went from alcohol to methamphetamine and crack cocaine in my later teens so and and really part of my story and in, in what I find, what I find the the curious, the most curious thing about this this addiction, uh, is the, the connective tissue behind it. Yeah, because for me, the the drugs and alcohol. Um, once I got that out of my life, I thought I was doing pretty good, right? Like I, and I became sort of this conservative Christian guy, you know, like, like, I, uh, Jesus saved me from my chemical romances. Yet I was also addicted to pornography. I'm using pornography, you know, just kind of a, it's just a thing, you know, until pretty soon I am seeing prostitutes. And yeah. and it just got darker, and that's usually how it goes. It grows in the dark, much like mold does. You know, in the shadows is is where mold and fungi tend to thrive, right?
1: Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. And it's it's funny, you know, you mentioned uh, the alcohol thing. Uh, my parents, three of their four parents, were massive alcoholics. I mean, mean, violent alcoholics. My parents, neither of them, have ever touched a drop in their life. And they raised my brother and I to believe that, you know, if we even got within a foot or two of a beer bottle, we would end up as hobo drunks laying in the gutter with, you know, with a bottle with two X's on it, like you saw in Bugs Bunny cartoons. Uh, And the first time that I got drunk, not only was it I found that there was this great relief and this great, you know, feeling uh, in my brain. But I also had that recognition of, you know, holy crap, they lied to me. Yeah, They lied to me. This stuff is actually great. Now, if they're telling me to stay away from something and it's great, what else <laughs> have they lied to me about? And That's I, so I think that that actually played a big role over the next 10 years in many of my risky behaviors. Right. I mean, thank, thank God I didn't get addicted to harder drugs because I, I tried on every right. one of them and, you know, th- thank God that alcohol and porn were the two things that did it for me. Um, and I also, I relate to your story of, you know, being able to get clean a little bit and not recognizing, uh, porn was a problem because right after I was arrested for, uh, ultimately child porn, pornography possession, I went to rehab for alcohol. I had to come back here to Maine and have really intense therapy for about six months before I was like, okay, pornography is a problem with me. I do actually have an addiction to this. You would think that the police walking through the door would make me say, okay, I have a problem, but I blamed it on the alcohol.
0: Yeah. Oh, dude, that is so true. That's one of the things that turned me off from uh, 12-Step Recovery, was there was just a lot of scapegoating the thing, right? Well, it's not my fault, it's the thing. And there's, you know... Like, I get it that that alcohol can be so addictive that it becomes this sort of demon. But the truth is that we use them as coping mechanisms. If you don't use yeah. alcohol, you can use meth. You can use, fuck, you can use Netflix, for God's sake, and just sit there and binge all day on Netflix shows. I mean, there's wow. a ton of things that we can wow. use to escape.
1: Walk into any restaurant and see how many people are glued to their phones. Oh, yeah. Social media is, people don't recognize this social media in i think is probably the most addictive substance or behavior that's out there right now. Yeah. And again, it's an addiction like every other addiction that has a deeper root problem. And I think that, you know, with, with the social media, like a lot of addictions, it's people who want to be loved and don't feel loved. It's people who want to, you know, didn't get a certain level of nurturing. So now it's really important for me for my cousin's best friend who I only met once to like a picture of the pasta I made for lunch. <laughs> right. you know, that 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 gives me validation. Yeah. And I think that's that's what a lot of addiction is is just, you know, trying to get validation somehow in your head or escaping a world where you don't.
0: And what you just brought up with social media is curious as well because that's, you know, we could get into semantics with some of the folks who say don't use it, you know, use the word. So that's where where I really got really curious about here in season six is is these folks that would say, stop calling it addiction, call it an intimacy disorder. Isn't that an intimacy disorder slash addiction as well? Because we're we're not doing face to face eye to eye real well. And this seems like an escape from the scary looking in someone's eyes, seeing their body language, and and not being able to control what that's like, right?
1: Well, my, my daughter's uh, 18 years old. Maybe she's 19 now. She turns 19 in a month. I asked her the other day, except for your mother and I, when was the last time you actually spoke to somebody on your phone? And she couldn't remember. Yeah. I mean, that, that tells that tells you how things are changing. Yeah. And yeah, it, I mean, that, that's, that's ultimately the thing is that uh, call it an addiction, call it a habit, call it bad behavior, call it whatever you want. If you look at something like gambling addiction is now recognized by the DSM, which is fantastic because we finally have a behavioral addiction in there. But here's the thing. Insurance companies still won't recognize gambling addiction as an actual thing. So you cannot have that. You can't go to rehab. You can't get medicine. You can't get anything with a gambling addiction diagnosis because the insurance companies still won't recognize it. So whether you want to call it sexual intimacy or sexual obsession or whatever label you want to put it on, it may not even matter if it makes the DSM because the insurance companies have shown that they don't believe that behavioral addictions are real.
0: Yeah. And there needs to be better language to help support. And, you know, that's part of it's the bean counters in some of these companies. They just don't want to shell out the money like they're looking for any way they can to escape having to pay a claim. Right. Which is sad in the state of affairs in our country. But, you know, that it's true that they're looking for, you know, I think that's why impulse control is the is the thing that gets the, them to pay out. And even that is still not getting to the root of the issue. And, and so that's where, you know, sobriety, sobriety sells, you know? And, and I think that that's important because it saves people's lives. Like we have this company here in Seattle area, it's Shadel, and they do these ads and, and they talk about, you know, their sobriety rate and stuff like that, which is great. But, in over time people really got to deal with their shit and that's why i like that you talk about your mental illness like you're not shy to say hey i have bipolar disorder a lot of folks it's scarier to walk into the the valley of the shadow of death and actually deal with your trauma and deal with your shit because that's that doesn't sell does it
1: John no, and, and the thing is, I mean, like I said, I was lucky, I was so so lucky in the way that I was arrested, and it was twenty two months before I had to go serve my sentence in that time, I spent ten weeks at alcohol addiction, I spent seven weeks at a sex sex addiction uh, rehab i was in intense therapy. I'm the kind of person who reads voraciously. You know, I had group therapy. I really could work on myself full time for 22 months. And I know most people in that, you know, getting better for two years was basically my job. And then it's time to record how I got here. You know, my my book is not self-help. My book is not, you know, statistics uh, and and a dry read. It's a memoir. It basically talks about the last four or five years of my porn and alcohol addictions and how they took me down because people can relate to that kind of thing. And people will see that, you know, porn addiction is not just, you know, this uh, socially inept 19-year-old guy who lives in his mom's basement and has never kissed a girl in real life. Right. You know? P- porn addicts are everybody. When I was in rehab, I met men and women, old, young, black, white, Asian, you know, Hispanic. It was it's everybody. And that's really one of the reasons I sat there and wrote my book was to show that if, you know, a professionally successful guy who appears to have it all together um, can be a porn addict, anybody can.
0: Absolutely. That's so true. Then it's more widespread. Than, than people want to acknowledge. Uh, um, so I wanted to ask a little bit about your your background uh, religiously. Like, did you grow up any kind of Catholic or religious or anything? Yeah. Did that have any I, impact on... I,
1: gr- I grew up as a uh, get-in-the-goddamn-car Catholic. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Forced to go to church every Sunday. Um, I really, once I moved out of my house, uh, turned away from it. Because I, as a young person, was very inquisitive, had a lot of questions, um, and they were never answered to my satisfaction. Because I said so, or because it says that, is is not a workable answer for me. Right. So for for many many years, um, I, I made the joke that I was a non practicing atheist because <laughs> I just kind of turned my mind away from it. But it was funny. Uh, it was you know people have asked me what have you learned writing the book and. One of the things I learned when I was actually sitting there writing the book and editing it was that I talked about the universe a lot, and the universe saw me through this situation, and the universe helped me here, and the universe put these words in my mouth because uh, right. I didn't know I didn't know what I was going to say, and it dawned on me. And I, I mean, I feel like a bit of an idiot not recognizing it a lot earlier, but it dawned on me that all I had done was taken the word God and taken the dogma away from. The religion i grew up with and i was just using the word universe right. and removing the dogma but in it at the core i'm such a faith-filled person right um, i am such an optimistic person i believe things turn out the way that they're supposed to even if you can't see it right now um, and i i i believe that before i got arrested uh um, that's something i've always carried with me so um you know, I still I'm still a little bit weird with using the G word and <laughs> yeah. uh, I I I don't belong I don't belong to any church right now, but I find that I am at a spiritual peace uh, unlike I have ever known.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. That me too. I consider myself a Christian mystic spiritual anarchist at this point in my life, which I think fits like I have a hard time identifying as a Christian just because of all the the baggage that that word carries, you know. <laughs>
1: well- you know, you know what I, I realized this this was actually something i just realized the other day is i was asking myself why do i have problems going to church why do i have and the thing is i think it's because nobody is praying to my god <laughs> you know right? i i can't do you know men's prayer groups and and I, I i go and i talk with uh church groups sometimes about pornography addiction and love the people very nice um they all are praying to the same god and i have not put a lot of uh rules and restrictions and dogma and uh characterizations on what my god or my universe is so i have i don't know of anybody who exactly prays or believes in the same thing i do so you know short of me starting my own religion uh which at this point people would just say it was a cult um you know <laughs> right, I, I, yeah. i'm, I'm kind of here on my own island but i'm okay with that
0: yeah but i think that's part of it is you've got to the depths of it you know josh it's you've got to a, a different ev- evolution of consciousness is what i would call it um consciousness is is something that we don't talk a lot about as westerners but that's something i go into with sobriety too like some of my criticisms of of you know 12 step culture is that there's There's different because there's different gods out there, even if you're like, I would say, even because I've done the same thing, you know, speaking to church groups and stuff, I would say you could sit in a room with 12 men who all worship, say they worship the same God. But there's something I I believe was Rob Bell that said, um, we create our gods and our gods create us. And so a lot of these men, they're sitting there and they're believing in some version of their, their Christ or Jesus or whoever they grew up with, right? Getting the goddamn car, Jesus, right? Like we all have these different relational um, connections with, with the divine. And I think it's cool that you have the the universe. I've, I've met a lot of folks like that. And that's, that's also, I, I see it all the same, honestly, like i I'm. I consider myself a Christian, but I'm not. I I know that I'm not worshiping the same God as as some of these guys, like like Trump. Or well, I was going like, to say, I'm and, not, and, and, and frankly,
1: know. I don't worship my God. It just is. It's cool. I'm cool with it. It's cool with me. Yeah. You know, I I, I don't need to get on my knees. I don't need to sacrifice a lamb. Right? I don't need to go kill anybody in another country. Uh, my God and I are cool.
0: Yeah, there you go. That's right, and that's the that's the, the my definition of worship is different than most church people too. I think I see worship as just you live your life. Your life is pouring out every day. You do life that I mean. I think it's even in the Bible. Like I, I, my whole life is an offering, right? Like he's telling them, like you know, all those burning animals, and you, we don't do that anymore. Like your whole life is an offering.
1: Well, it's not and, that, and, and that
0: there's many paths to God, but there is one stream that will bring you to a consciousness that will have you survive some of this shit that that you and I have been through, right, Josh?
1: Right. But but let's be honest. A lot of what we're talking about is above the average churchgoer's head. Yeah. They're they're there because they're scared of getting sick, they're scared of dying, and they're looking for some afterlife insurance. Yes,
0: yeah, fire insurance. <laughs> yeah,
1: that that's yeah. it. That's I mean that, that that's why they're there. They don't go much deeper than Uh, my parents went to church, so I go to church, so I'm dragging my kids to church, because that's what you do. Exactly. That was just, that was never my mindset, ever. I went through the rigmarole of the communion and the confirmation to make my parents happy, but, yeah, it took me me quite a while to come to this place where I am now. I, I am content with where I am spiritually, um, you know, I, I I wish I had some more proof of uh, things, but I'm I'm cool with where I am right now, and and I don't need to uh, I don't need to know much more. I don't need to, like I said, get on my knees and, and pray to some guy in the clouds. Uh, I don't know what happens when we die. If nothing, I'm at peace with that. Yeah, uh, you know, it's just I think that there I think it's silly to believe that there is not some kind of higher order of things exactly and i i had a counselor at one of my rehabs say here's what you do you just say that god is some kind of force of energy that science will once day fig, one day figure out but hasn't yet it's like the po- <laughs> it's like the polio vaccine we didn't know how to beat polio we hoped we would one day and then science figured it out so if you need to believe in a god, but you're too science based, just tell yourself that one day, you know, science will figure it out.
0: Yeah, that's that's true, and hopefully, science will figure it out, right? I don't know if we could prove it, but then would that work? That's always interesting too. Like there's it's, this consciousness thing is so important because if well, we I was could just,
1: say, just but Jesus, look uh, look at this world right now. Yeah, you can put you can put things in front of people and say, "Look, this is yellow." And they'll say, "Uh, uh-uh, uh that's blue," <laughs> yeah, that's, and that's because right. of the because of the news channel I watch, it's blue. Yeah. Because of the news channel you watch, you're wrong. Exactly. And so I, I don't. I think that uh, I think it might be better that we leave a lot of questions uh, up for debate when it comes to religion. If I was the scientist that undid that key, uh, I, I I would. I would really think about sharing it with everybody because that could be a horrible Pandora's box.
0: Yeah. And that's one thing I had to do in my recovery, Josh, was I had to shed my certainty addiction because, you know, I had all these little certainties. And, and then I would, you know, meet other people who struggled in similar ways that I did who came to different conclusions and it would just blow apart all my little, all my little certainty idols, you know? Right. Right. and And I, so now I'll get Christians that want to correct me and say I'm wrong about this or that. It's like, you know, you're, you're, you invited me to come talk to you. Like why, am, why are you all of a sudden trying to pick me apart? And I think what I usually come back to and getting back to your point is let me tell you about the God that, that set me free and, 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 and was light and life and in, in, in darkness and death. And I thought, you know, suicide would be a great way to, to get out of this situation. And, and let me tell you about the God that keeps rescuing me from that hell. Because I don't, I don't recognize what you guys are talking about as God or right. hell or right. this, this, you know, or substitutionary atonement where we have God the Father is like Zeus and he's got lightning bolts and he's going to throw you at hell. But, oh, Jesus came to, to save you. And it's just, it's just that this shit doesn't make sense to me. Like if there's one God, why is he bipolar? Right. Like I don't I don't know how to to ratify that. But I do know the reality of 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 the fact that I'm still alive, that I'm still breathing, that my compulsions um, don't rule my life anymore.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I'll tell you, I've learned in talking to church groups and talking to different political types and talking to people who are like, it's not an addiction, it's this. A, I've just learned, okay, okay, yeah. that's cool. And and it's funny because that half the time that pisses them off even worse. <laughs> just, okay, if, that, if that's what you think, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, thank, thankfully, you have the luxury of ignorance when it comes to addiction. Yeah. I've lived through. I've lived through it, but okay, whatever you think is cool with me.
0: Exactly, and that's where I go with uh, some of the intimacy disorder. But in in understanding my own areas of connection and where I lack, I uh, I'm like, okay, if you guys are saying it's not an addiction. What is it? And so as a skeptic kind of going into this as a skeptic and, and pulling out what they mean by intimacy disorder, I've found some pretty cool shit in there. I'll be honest, Josh about how I relate and how I've been relating in relationships. Um, and how, so I go to a group on Mondays now for men who uh, are sexual assault survivors. So I was, Basically, I was raped when I was nine years old. Now, I never told anyone that until I was thirty eight years old all right so he, he, there was just a lot of me trying to trying to be behave correctly and trying to be sober and I did pretty good at that, like I was really good with the you know the drugs and the alcohol but but down deep, I was wounded and bleeding. And it took me having to go into that dark, scary hole, and walk through that valley of the shadow of death before.
1: Yeah, no, and that—that's the thing that I say is that if it okay, it's it's not addiction. That's fine. Um, my is an addiction. This is whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm treating them the same way. I'm getting yeah. better the same way. It's all labels. I mean, exactly. look, look at my, semantics. Look at, bipolar dis- look at bipolar disorder. You can't take a blood test for bipolar disorder exactly you don't take a blood test for add or adhd to figure out which one it is or asperger's you know it's all diagnosis and at the end of the day you are who you are and you have to deal with it
0: exactly that is so true at the end of the day you got to find out who you are man you got to realize who you are and start there and that's a hard that's a hard reality for a lot of people isn't it
1: well, and, I mean, for people like you and I who had, you know, some pretty severe childhood trauma, you know, you you run from it. And you run from it to the point where, at least I can speak for myself, um, I minimized it to the point that it was almost nothingness. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until I went back and really started digging through there that it was like, holy crap, this is where, you know, I was Four years old, five years old. When I dis- when I developed my survival methods, I was four or five years old when I started with my detachment disorder as a way to survive. Right. You know, I was I was four or five years old when I started being a manipulative liar just to get to the next day, and I had no idea that you know back then was when I formed a lot of these. Uh, uh, coping methods. And while those coping methods may work for a four or five year old, you know, they clearly weren't working for a 35 year old professional with a family and, you know, everything else going on, because those were the coping methods and survival methods that I leaned on forever. I never developed proper ones because of this horrible trauma that happened.
0: And that takes waking up to that reality, doesn't it?
1: Well it takes it, it, it takes waking up and you know it's 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 and my uh, my abuser was a, uh, a babysitter that I had it wasn't, I wasn't you know I always want people to know it wasn't my parents. those people were amazing. Um, but it was a babysitter that I had for many years who took care of me when my parents were at work and uh, it was just one of those things where I never knew it was supposed to be different than that yeah. and then and then after all those years of repressing it, um, I go back and there were incidences I remember, and I think I've I've actually listed, I remember 16 specific instances of something happening to me or one of the other children in her care that I witnessed. Mm. And, you know, I haven't had a revelation of number 17 in, you know, I probably haven't had a revelation in a year and a half, two years now, but those were the most traumatic, painful things when another uh, memory would just come flooding back. Mm. And But the thing was, I'm so much better for having dealt with it because it's not that the memory came back. The memory was always locked in there subconsciously. I was living that memory. I was dealing with that memory in very unhealthy ways. And I had to get to a point that I could get it out of my system. So I truly could get it out of my system.
0: Yeah. And that's what happens is we get frozen. Into these places, that's what trauma does, you know. Like we may think that it's the past and that we've gone through it, but somewhere inside of us, we're still there. We're kind of stuck. I'm doing EMDR therapy, and in EMDR, it stands for eye movement, right? Uh, right. Reprocessing. Yeah, yeah. And it's it it's dude, it is heavy. And you're right. I get to some of these memories, like I didn't remember that, you know, sitting on the porch. Of my abuser's trailer, we lived in a trailer park and and waiting for him to get off school so, because I had no one to connect with I had no my I was a latchkey kid, you know folks weren't home. I was just lonely and i didn't I didn't have anybody to look up to I didn't have a, a father and my dad was you know divorced and I married to an abusive stepmother i didn't I loved him I didn't want to see him. Uh, so there I was, you know, in this EMDR session, and this memory comes flooding back of me sitting on the porch, and I can smell the grass, and I can hear the birds chirping, and and yeah, man, it's it's heavy shit. It's hard work, and it's sometimes I think about going into EMDR, and it's it's almost like okay, I'm gonna run a marathon today emotionally, well, right? Well,
1: I was gonna say, and I, I've had I've had, I've learned. Uh, my first that that time between my arrest and my sentencing when I would go into this heavy duty therapy a couple times a week i actually made sure that i scheduled it towards the end of the day because if i did it at the beginning of the day i was completely wrecked yeah and i couldn't function and i'm i'm a freelance writer you know i work at home and if i came home in tears or just shell shocked I lost the day of work, so it was better to be at 4 or 5 p.m. and have already got a day's worth of work behind me because, you know, when I go to bed, I can usually sleep off just about anything. uh, But I couldn't do that at the beginning of the day. And, uh, you know, I want to mention, you talk about, uh, for people listening who are like, yeah, but I just have an alcohol problem or I just have a porn problem or I just have a drug problem. You know, it's never just that. No, it's not. The addiction is a symptom. And I see people who are trying to deal with the symptom and that's just never helps you know and i talked to somebody the other day who said well i don't know if i have a porn addiction but you know i'm really trying to get away from looking at asian pornography and i said so you think Asians are the problem with your pornography and i said yeah i said what you were i said this isn't even the problem you are treating a symptom of a symptom yeah what what makes you think you're ever going to get to the core of this because i'll tell you once i got to the core of this not drinking and not looking at porn actually got a lot easier you know yeah. I, I don't i people on you know some of these uh message boards online or stuff where you know proudly six days without porn you know, i i broke down again looked at it last night restart my counter yeah. i went three days this time and it's like you're not achieving anything <laughs> no, because not. you know it's like it's like you're trying to bail a boat that is sinking exactly and You need to actually go deal with the hole at the bottom of the boat because trying to bail it with a pail— that's not working, and you need to actually recognize that. And I know diving underneath and finding the hole and being underwater and taking care of it, and you don't quite know how to patch it and how to fix this situation, but you have to try to do that if you're going to save yourself and not drown ultimately.
0: Yeah. Oh, that is such a good analogy. I'm going to steal actually, that, it Josh. It's a great
1: analogy. It's the first <laughs> time I've ever said it. i got to like, go inside and write this down soon. Yeah, that's good. I'm going I'm I'm to steal that one, one right book.
0: there. That's a good one. Yeah, no, I'm
1: sorry. Copyright,
0: copyright. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true though. You're you're so you're so right. I use the analogy of uh, so in my house we had these little uh, black ants, you know, uh, the little uh, odorous house ants are called, and they love moisture, you know, and 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 we would put out the traps. And we would set all these little things up, and, and we would spray them with the sprays, and they would go away for a little while, and then they would come back, and they kept coming back. And so I finally talked to a, an exterminator, and this guy said, uh, he said, he said, Russ, the problem with these ants is they have multiple queens, and they live under the for, floorboards. And he says, you can, you can smash them, and you can spray them, and you can trap them all day long. And he says, but until you go under the floorboards and you kill that queen you're just they're just going to keep it's that queen is going to keep birthing out new odorous house ants that you'll see on the surface. It's just going to keep birthing them out. And when he used that term birthing them out, I'm like, "Oh shit, that's brilliant."
1: Yeah. <laughs> I need to yeah, write really. that down.
0: Like that's that's so that's so pornography addiction or alcohol addiction or all these different addictions, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing is you see the people at rehab who fail, they only usually last a week or two because they recognize that this is going to involve some unwinding of some massively pent-up trauma, and it's a traumatic experience to unwind it. And they're just not up for it, and they, they fail and they leave because they're not up for it. You see people who have done seven, eight, nine rehabs, and they finally get it on number 10, and invariably they always say it finally just clicked that I had to deal with this other stuff. Yeah. It really wasn't about drinking or drugs or porn or or food or whatever you know they were there for.
0: Yeah. And that was me. You know, I mean, for years I didn't want to deal with my shit like I didn't want to go into that. I never wanted to have to. And here's what I thought. I thought I'd have to relive it in order to get healthy. And I don't. I realize that now. Right. I'm right. a am a observer standing from the outside. I'm a grown ass man. And this happened to a child version of myself. And what's cool, you think about storytelling and the Marvel movies right now are so big. And what I get to do or what I got to do, Josh, and maybe you could relate, is I got to be the superhero running in to little, you know, a nine-year-old me, seven-year-old me. And and I got to, I get to rescue him, I, you know. And it's hard and it's difficult. But I get to dive in the water and patch the boat. I get to find, go in there with him and find the queen ant. You know, it's not it's not this horrible scary. It, it is scary, <laughs> but it's not as bad as we set it up to be, is it?
1: No, no. And that's the I tell people that it's hard work, but hard work is the most rewarding work.
0: Yeah. Oh, dude, that's so true. Absolutely. And, you know, hey, thanks for being on the podcast today. You know, when I started this interview, I'll be honest, I thought you might be a symptom guy. (laughs) So that's where I was kind of going with some of my questions because I get, you know, I get a lot of people. But when you talked about your mental illness, I'm like, hey, man, I think this guy would be a, a, a great guest. I've had I've had a number of requests and. Uh, not everybody who sends a request to be on this podcast is, and, uh, yeah, man, it's, it's been really great talking to you.
1: And thank you very much. And like I said, if anybody wants to read a tale of porn addiction, you know, it's, it's, it's just what happened, you know, so you're, you're not going to learn a lot of lessons, uh, except for the ones you take, um, from it. Uh, that's called the addiction. Nobody will talk about uh, it's on Amazon, but you can also get it through my website, which is recoveringpornaddict.com
0: yes recoveringpornaddict.com and yeah. uh, thanks Josh appreciate your thank brother. you brother
1: thank you so much this has been a great conversation afternoon.
0: if you were ever in doubt don't sell yourself short you might Thanks for listening, and like the guys there in Shine Down. I want to encourage you, the listener, to get up, right? Get up. Get a move on. Get something going. What do you want, right? What do you want moving forward? You have strengths. That need to be exercised, you know, and and I—that's what this thing exists—is to encourage listeners to uh, to move forward in your life. Um, and and I—that's just—that's I, I love you guys, and that's really what this thing exists for. Uh, asi 247org is the uh, uh, website for this here podcast. Um, again, my guest, recovering port addict dot com. Um, you can check out Joshua Shea's material there uh, for more interviews like this one uh, listeners this is a listener supported podcast and throwing that out there that uh, donations keep this thing alive um, also There's a Spotify playlist, uh, ASI Podcast Bumps, if you want to check that out. That's where you can follow the bands. That's Shinedown, brand new album from Shinedown. Um, Earlier you heard 6AM Pray For Me. That's the 2017 version of The Heroin Diaries, Nikki Nikki Six and 6AM. Love those guys. Um, But again, if you like the music, uh, you can listen to it on Spotify you can buy the merch you follow the bands they'll even notify you when they come to your town so there's that um again asi247.org uh if any of this is making sense um if you could throw a, a few bucks my way to keep it going uh would be much appreciated I've been approached to do ads from different, like, rehab centers, and I've thought about that, but I don't know. Like, I uh, I like that it's listener-supported. Um, there's something to that. There's an ear willing to put their own life energy in to keep it going. Uh, and that is a kind of uh, economy that's different than having this thing sponsored asi247.org. Click on the co-producer or the give button if you'd like to uh, be a co-producer with uh, me on this adventure into sexual integrity in 2018 and beyond. And thanks, man, for all of you who have given and uh, and are giving. Man, I, I appreciate it more than you uh, more than you know. And for those of you who are just listening love you guys I do mean that sincerely and until next time bye yeah I don't know why I never talk about it I guess that's probably part of the problem yeah sometimes you're wrong sometimes you're right I'm just gonna keep moving